Everybody can go ahead and be seated. Merry Christmas, everybody. Man, are people awake? Merry Christmas, everybody. All right. <laughs> so Captain Gerald Coffey, United States Navy, wrote in his book, Beyond Survival, February 3rd, 1966 was a sparkler of a day. Navigator Bob Henson and I made our way across the flight deck of the USS Kitty Hawk and manned our RA-5C Vigilante aircraft for launch. I was thrilled as the instantaneous surge took our 30-ton reconnaissance aircraft to 170 miles an hour in less than three seconds. We rendezvoused with our F-4 Phantom Escort and headed west. Near Tan Hoa, the overall S-curve of the Vietnam coast ran close to true north and south. The bridge there, the target we were to photograph, lay about 25 miles away from us. The mission went like clockwork, he said. I saw no flak, but frequently changed directions to keep any ground gunners from attacking me. Then heading back toward the coast, I felt a hit, he says. It happened so fast, no tracers, no warning. First a vibration, then the illumination of the master warning light. The vibration became heavier and the control stick sluggish. Suddenly we rolled left. I tried to muscle the control stick back into effectiveness, nothing. The nose dropped and we picked up more speed. Mayday, mayday, rolling rapidly, warning lights flashing, no more sky ahead. Only the shimmering blue gulf spinning in front like a propeller. Eject, eject, eject. The water stung like fire. My right arm wouldn't move. Coffee managed to free himself from the parachute but couldn't signal the rescue aircraft. Boats appeared on the horizon and soon Coffee realized he was in trouble. In a flash, the muzzle of the AK-47 erupted in blue flame and the water exploded into my face, he wrote. Two more shots in rapid succession. I felt a stunning crack on my helmet as my head was knocked back. A piercing strobe light bleached my brain followed by an image of swirling blood and green dye. Here I was, 31 years old, a prisoner of war among people we have been bombing and strafing. God, I am going to need you a lot. Please stay with me, he wrote. His face, neck, and both arms were blistered crimson from the rocket flames of one of his jet's ejection seats. His right forearm was broken and his elbow badly dislocated, probably shattered as well. The entire arm and shoulder were swollen twice their normal size. He writes, the guards yanked me along the mazes of the hamlet, pushing me twice into smelly ditches, carrying urine and feces. Eventually, coffee was shoved into a dark cavity of a cell about three feet wide and seven feet long. He writes, the tiny dungeon reeked of decades of human misery. I could smell it in the stale, damp air, and it permeated my skin. I was fed twice a day a bowl of soup or whatever was in season, pumpkin gourd, or squash. Sometimes there would be a piece of fat the size of a quarter, and it was cause for celebration if there was a small morsel of pork still attached to it. There was also a bowl of rice, which I swallowed without chewing because the gravel and grit would crunch hard on my teeth. My physical circumstances were abysmal. My clothes were filthy and ragged. I spent a lot of time in the fetal position hunched close against myself for warmth and trying to support my arm. In every joint, bone, and muscle, I felt the pressure increase on my shoulders, 
as they hoisted me off the floor with a rope threaded through a hook in the ceiling. They bounced me up and down, and I started to black out. I tried to detach myself with thoughts of my wife, but the pain made it impossible. He writes this, Christmas 1968 stands out in my memory. I had never known what real loneliness could be. And then I thought about the simplicity of Christ's birth. Here, in this prison cell, there was nothing to distract me from the awesomeness of Christmas. No commercialism, no presents, very little food. I had been stripped of everything which I had measured my identity. Rank, uniform, money, family. I realized that although I was hurting and lonely and scared, this might be the most significant Christmas of my life. Now let me ask you a question. How can a man have the most significant Christmas of his life without family, without wife, without children, without a home, without gifts, without cards, without carols, without celebrations? How can Christmas be so totally significant without any of these things? How can he see in the simplicity of Christmas all that he needs to make it the most significant Christmas of his life? So let me offer a second question, though. How is it that millions of free and prosperous people in our nation who actually have a family, have children, a wife or a husband, who have a home, who have gifts, who have cards, who have carols, who have celebrations, who have all of that, but can find Christmas so utterly insignificant, meaningless, and even depressing? What made Captain Gerald Coffey's Christmas so special? He had none of that. Okay, I think one paragraph sums it up best. He said, I thought about the simplicity of Christ's birth. Here there was nothing to distract me from the awesomeness of Christmas. And I would pray that somehow even today, there would be nothing to distract us from this awesomeness of Christmas. Christmas has become what? So complex, so chaotic, so confusing. I mean, with all the stuff that the reality of the simplicity of Christmas, of Christ, really gets blended into this whole fantasy, and it's just kind of lost its significance, all right? Christmas should be simple, not complex, very simple. I mean, as simple and uncluttered as that lonely man found it in a Vietnamese prison cell. Christmas should be stripped of all of its trappings, so that all that is left is the simplicity of God becoming man. And that's the only element in Christmas, in this whole Christmas seasonal celebration, really that has any lasting power to affect life. There's no real strength, no real peace or comfort or hope or love or promise or even confidence in the future to be found in Santa Claus. I mean, it's fun, but where's the power in that? There's no lasting value in any earthly gift or any earthly sentiment. I mean, let's face it, the tree always dies unless it never lived because it was fake to begin with, right? No package, no party can really sustain a flickering life. 
No bright lights can lift up a downcast soul. There is no power in Santa Claus. There's no power in a tree. There's no power in fellowship. And there's no power in lights. I mean, I hate to break it to you, there's no power in Hallmark movies either. (laughs) And I've watched a lot of them. (laughs) They're all the same. (laughs) And I'll even say this, while family is important, it's even critically important in today's culture, there's no lasting power in family either. Many churches are canceling service today because of family commitments. But let me just ask, what is more important? My friends, listen, when you are desperate, when you need something more than family, trees, and presents, in the hour of need, all Christmas has to offer is Jesus Christ. God becoming man. He is utterly sufficient. And only he can fill the heart with hope in a time of doubt. Only he can fill the heart with lasting joy in a time of sadness. Only he can fill the heart with peace in a time of fear. I mean, think about it. Life today is chaotic, right? we got inflation running rampant, right? Job instability, war going on, crime on the rise. I mean, have you noticed how people in general are on the edge nowadays? And some people just seem plain hateful, grouchy, right? When life gets chaotic, the only hope is Jesus Christ. God becoming man and living with us, showing us his glory and giving us grace and truth. One simple look at the birth of the Son of God should tell us the reason, the reason for the season, the reason for the hope that we can have. So very quickly, let's read our text this morning, starting in Matthew 121. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, and when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, there are four titles in this passage each of which gives us insight into why Jesus is so sufficient for us and really the only real power at Christmas. The four titles, verse 21, he's called Jesus. Verse 23, he's called Emmanuel. Verse 2 of chapter 2, he's called King. And verse 4 of chapter 2, he is called Christ. All of those titles for that one little child, right? Jesus, Emmanuel, King, Christ. Jesus, Emmanuel, King, Christ. These titles are going to tell us how this little child of Christmas, lying in the manger, born in such humble beginnings, has the power to restore the fainting heart and give hope in a world turned upside down. 
So very quickly, first of all, let us consider the name Jesus in verse 21. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? He says, because it is he who will save his people from their sins. Jesus, he gives salvation to his people. He saves them from their sins. Right? Jesus is a form of the Hebrew word for Joshua. It means Yahweh or God will save. Luke 2.11 says he would be born a savior. Mark 10.45 says the Son of Man has come to save. Luke 19.10 says he has come to save. He shall save his people from their sins. Now that is a glorious reality. And if you've been here any time, we've talked about this before, right? And I like to say all of mankind has this perfect storm of three issues that we have to deal with. That we, ha- you know, we have to deal with these or we're going to face the eternal wrath of God punishment, right? We are cosmic traitors, I like to say. Why? Because we've broken God's laws and we are rebelling against his rule. I like to say what the, the penalty for treason in the United States is death. What's more, the penalty of rebelling against God is eternal death, eternal punishment, right? We also have a debt that we cannot repay because we, we have an obligation. We are God's creation. We have an obligation to live as God intended. But we broke that obligation, therefore we have a debt. And because of these two issues, we have a severed relationship with God. We are enemies of God. How can we rectify this situation? I, for one, don't want to be an enemy of God. How can we rectify this situation? The problem is we can't. We can't. But Jesus came into the world to fix these three issues and save us from the wrath of God's punishment. He provides forgiveness of sins. He provides payment for our debt. And he restores our broken relationship with God. Now listen, friends, no matter what poverty a man or woman might experience, no matter how lonely your life might be, no matter how sad it might be, no matter how painful your situation or how bleak the Christmas season, no matter what dungeon or prison cell you might find yourself in, no matter how strong your fears and how terrifying the prospects of your future might be, if you have Jesus Christ, you can see through all of this to the one who has forgiven your sins paid your debt, and restored your relationship to God. And in that, there is fullness of joy. No matter what goes wrong in life, know this, you have complete and perfect grace through Jesus Christ if you trust that he has done that for you. That captain in a Vietnam prison cell had nothing of the world's goods. And maybe I think that's why he could see Christmas as so significant. right? Because what he saw was Jesus who came to save him from his sins. All right, second title given to the child of Christmas comes in verse 23. This is one of those great titles that he bears, right? Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's not only Jesus, he's Emmanuel. And to see that this time, I mean, to see that is also a great reality, right? Right? Verse 23 is a quote from the Old Testament. It's taken from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And the angel quotes this when he's talking to Isaiah. I'm sorry, to Joseph. 
So what does Emmanuel mean? I mean, really, it means God lives among us. It means God became a man. God will be present with his people. The child of Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us. The child who was born that day, though fully human in every way, was also fully God. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was in the temple. But now today, the presence of God is in a body, in the person of Jesus Christ, God with us. So like the term Jesus, Emmanuel is a powerful Christmas truth, right? Let's, let, let me say this. A priest is someone who intercedes for you, someone who goes to God for you, all right? He can go to God for us, he can plead our case, and he can ask God to help us, right? But how can he do this? if he doesn't understand us. So a priest was chosen from among men because he could then pray for the needs of the people because he knew what they were, right? The priest was a human being. He knew. But human priests cannot go to God for us fully because why? Well, they're sinful human beings just like all of us. The Son of God became one of us in order that he might rightly represent us as our faithful high priest before God. And remember, he himself was tempted in which he suffered, and so he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He knew temptation. He knew testing. He knew suffering. Jesus restores this relationship with God. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. He loves us. All for those who put his trust in him and his work. And at Christmas, when you see this child, see who he is. Emmanuel, God with us. Remember, he was hungry, he was thirsty, he was tired, he slept, he learned, he was glad, he was sad, he was angry, he was grieved, he was troubled, he was disappointed, he cried, he was overcome by the prospect of future events as he hung on the cross, he exercised faith, he read the scriptures, he prayed, he sighed with an aching heart, he felt everything. My friends, no, this is not a cosmic God who is utterly indifferent. He knows our hurts and he knows our weaknesses. And he's not only the Christ of salvation, but he's the Christ of sympathy. This, this is a Christmas perspective. The child born that day was God with us to feel what we feel, to experience what we experience, to be tempted and tested as we are tempted and tested in order that he might sympathize with us on the one hand but also in order that he might aid us on the other hand. It's not just to sympathize, but it's to come to our aid. It's to help us. Yes, we can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us, but it says in Hebrews 2.18, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tested. He helps us, God with us. So Jesus, he saves us from our sins. Emmanuel, for he's God with us to help us in our struggle. Now the third title when wise men arrived and, co and confronted Herod in verse 2 of chapter 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Here he's introduced as a king. He came not only to save his people from their sins, he came not only to sympathize and help his people, but he came to rule the world. So there, this is something to focus on, right? This is something to focus on when you look into the Christmas scene, right? Jesus, Savior, 
Emmanuel, sympathetic helper. We see a baby in a manger, right? Oh, he's so cute with the cute little animals, little baby in the manger, little baby Jesus. In the mo- I'm going to get in trouble when I say this. In the movie, Talladega Nights, right? Ricky Bobby, played by Will Ferrell, prays to little baby Jesus. Oh, he loves little baby Jesus. Little baby Jesus is his favorite. This is his favorite. Little baby Jesus, right? Ricky Bobby likes little baby Jesus. Why? Because everybody likes little baby Jesus. However, the child was born a king. He's a ruler. He's a monarch. He's sovereign. The wise men brought gifts for a king. And even though his life didn't, I mean, Throughout his life, it didn't even appear that he was the kind of king that everybody sort of wanted him to be, right? Even his disciples were wondering, when is he going to take his kingdom? They wanted to be his right-hand man. Who's the most favored? Because, man, when this guy becomes king and ruler and, you know, throws off Roman rule and we got a big kingdom here, I'm going to, this is my man right here, I am going to be Jesus' right-hand man when he becomes king, Right? He's going to come down hard on those enemies. We're going to see him break Roman rule, and we're going to be free. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with this guy, right? I am with him. But it never happened. They were asking, when's he going to assert himself? I mean, Jesus is talking about all this stuff, turn the other cheek stuff. What is that all about? We want a king who's big, powerful, strong. He's going to run roughshod over the Romans. Right? Even Pilate confronted him and said, are you a king? Jesus said, yes, I am. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would fight. He said, but I am a king, but my kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Yes, he was a king, not just like other kings, but a king unlike other kings, a king over all kings. Okay, in the book of Revelation, we see we look to the future, right? And we see Jesus already, the spiritual king of kings, begin to take his earthly throne. It tells us in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So as you look at that little baby in the manger, This is the Christmas reality, right? And it's powerful because the little baby is a king, right? Jesus, he saves his people from their sins. Emmanuel, he's God with us, our sympathetic strengthener, right? He's able to understand and to aid us. A king who rules the entire physical universe and a spiritual kingdom and will soon come and rule on the earth. Now, finally, verse 4 gives us one more familiar term. Our text says that Herod began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. People think Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is his first name. Christ is his last name. Some people use Jesus Christ as a swear name and add an H in there. I don't even know what that's all about. What is that all about? Christ is a term that just means Messiah, the anointed one of God. And it reflects his right to rule, his right to have authority, his right to be a sovereign sovereignty as the promised anointed one of God, right? When you have a Greek prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9 introducing the Messiah, it says this, there will be a child, a son, 
He will be one, a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, or the Father of eternity, or the eternal Father. The Messiah is the eternal one, and he is the eternal Father in the sense that he is the originator of life. He is the giver of life, the life giver. When you see the word Christ, think of him this way, as the generator of life, right? Giver of life. John 1, we've gone through this, says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 10, 28, I am come that you might have what? That you might have life. I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. Peter says in Acts 3.15 when he's preaching to those in Jerusalem right after Christ was resurrected. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. The word author means beginner, initiator, author, the one that creates. My favorite though is originator, right? So when you think about this child, think of him as the originator of life. Think about this. Evolution says all, you know, big bang, all this matter and energy was created. There was this chemicals in this little puddle of goo. Lightning strikes it, and then life happens. But my friends, the Bible says there was life long before there was even a universe that was created because in Christ was life itself. Jesus, Emmanuel, King, right, is the one who gives life and the one who sustains life. He is the one of whom it said in uh, Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life you were dead in rebellion and sin but he made you alive together with christ so his name is not jesus emmanuel king christ just because he's our example his name is not jesus emmanuel king christ because he's our teacher his name is not jesus emmanuel king christ simply because he's our guide his name is not Jesus, Emmanuel, King, Christ, just because he's our friend. He is all of that. He is all of that. But his name is Jesus because he saves us from our sins. His name is Emmanuel because he is our sympathizing strengthener. He is God with us. His name is King because he is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. And his name is Christ because he is the source of of our life and when you know all of this and when you believe all of that and when you confess all of that then I think you have seen through all of the trappings of the cultural holiday to the simplicity of the birth of Christ and that will make your Christmas really significant right Gerald Coffey looked to Jesus the reality of the incarnate God and his face faith in the living God man was the powerful Christmas truth that sustained his tortured soul and made 1968 in a wretched Vietnamese prison cell the most significant Christmas of his life because all there was was Christ and Christ is all anyone ever needs when life reaches its moment of desperation the only hope is Jesus Emmanuel King Christ. So let's pray.